Welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Uh, joining me on the phone, as always, it is co-host, former Guns N' Roses manager and great white, le seul et unique, Alain Niven. Bonjour, Alain. How are you? I'm very good and thoroughly looking forward to today because we have an extra special guest today who uh, we do. is involved in something um, maybe a little different from music, but something that I find incredibly engrossing and interesting all my life and i am delighted to ask you to introduce the one and only alexi lawless former soccer star of course of the 1994 fifa world cup and all that other great stuff uh alexi bonjour how are you Bonjour. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, yeah, my, my, my days are still filled with plenty of soccer. I work out here in Los Angeles where I'm talking to you from uh, with, with Fox Sports. And so, you know, there is soccer that is going on and has been going on and actually is coming back on. Alan, I don't know who you support uh, out there, but I'm in, I'm in the process right now of today of watching uh, leagues from the EPL uh, over in England that's just come back online, the Bundesliga from Germany. We've got uh, Italy and Spain, and then here in the United States with Major League Soccer coming back online and all sorts of sports coming back online. So my days are filled, like I said, with, with plenty of soccer and plenty of music. You know, my, my, my <laughs> team back in the day was the Montreal Manique. The Manique. Uh, I don't know if anybody remembers them, but I used to go see them at the Montreal Forum in the indoor, and they'd always play the Chicago Sting, and then they would play at the uh, Montreal... Um, Olympic Stadium, but now we have the impact. So yes, you do. Yes, you do. Up there, Thierry Henry, the new coach up there for the impact in Major League Soccer. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he does uh, out there. So there's there's soccer in everybody's life, uh, little and a lot, but uh, it touches everybody at some point. Yes, and Alan, I know you uh, want to talk soccer because we always talk about Guns and Roses. So go ahead, hit me with your soccer. Oh, well, it must it must feel really good to have fresh soccer games to. Uh, watch and comment on. Um, but I will say that one of the things I enjoyed about COVID was being able to go back and look at games that I hadn't seen for a long time or had missed. And being a Chelsea supporter since uh, napkins, uh, since nappies, um, it was fun to go back and watch Chelsea beat Arsenal, you know, 6-0 <laughs> back in the whenever. Um, but you played at an incredible level. You played in a World Cup, which is absolutely amazing. And I don't know how many of our listeners would remember this, but you came with, theoretically, within a goal of maybe making a World Cup final, which is stunning. Did you not lose to Brazil 1-0 and then they went on to win the tournament? We did. That was back in 1994. One of the reasons why I, I talked to you uh, is, is you know, or, or one of the reasons why I'm talking to you is because of that summer of 1994. The U.S. hosted the World Cup back then. For those of your listeners that weren't around or don't remember or don't don't care, and my life changed forever in, in front of a billion people. I ran around, and kicked the ball, and all sorts of opportunities on and off the field came about. And uh, you know, I'm I turned 50 years old this year. Uh, it seems like yesterday I was running around on the field, but soccer is still a huge part of my life. As I said, from uh, a, a career perspective, um, and it's it's it changed my life. And I, I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit and did not envision soccer being as much a part of my life as it has become. But soccer has grown all over the world, and including the United States and Canada. And uh, it's taken me all over the world and provided some incredible experiences, whether it's playing in a World Cup or playing over in Italy or playing back in the United States or meeting different people. And it, and you know, to your point, Alan, it, it's so amazing how many people 
in different ways and in different amounts have a connection to soccer, especially when it comes to the music industry out there with, you know, with the international aspect of it. And to have this little thread that uh, that binds us is uh, is wonderful. It really is. And I'll, I'll just well, we, say this, by the way, you, Alan. Please have a... Uh... I just want to quickly, well, you were talking about uh, old sports. And so up here in Canada on TSN and, and Sportsnet, they have been rerunning the uh, Montreal Canadiens beating the LA Kings in the 1993 Stanley Cup. It is fantastic to watch that over and over again. Oh, I love it. Well, you're, you know, you're talking to a Detroit kid. So I'm a Red Wings fan through and through. It was, uh, you know, I, I grew up going back and forth from playing soccer uh, and hockey and, and obviously you know, hockey town isn't what it used to be, but I used to sit up on Saturday night. Uh, I kid you not, I was 10, 11 years old. And because we, we lived in Detroit, we could get CBC, the Canadian broadcast um, of Hockey Night in Canada. And I would sit up and I would prepare myself. I would have a towel and I would have my chips and my uh, root beer. And I would sit there and watch a lot of, believe me, there was a lot of Toronto Maple Leafs, you know, Daryl Sittler and those type, Boreas Salming and these types of players. So hockey is also near and dear to me. I still play hockey out here in uh, in Los Angeles because it's the law in Michigan when you grow up. But I was going back and forth between these these two sports worlds of soccer and hockey and, um, well, you know, basically the best of both worlds. Well, okay, let me ask you about that because you're in Detroit, which of course gave us, you know, MC5, Alice Cooper, Ted Nugent, uh, yeah. the genesis of KISS and and it is a hockey town. How did you not either become a rock star, a, a auto worker, or or a hockey player? How how did your you know how did you get into soccer in in that area? So you know my my dad uh, was a professor at the university in uh, in uh, in uh, in Detroit at Wayne State University. My mom uh, is and has been a writer for many many years, a poet. Uh, and so I was not from a, a sports background in terms of my household. They did not envision their firstborn going on playing professional anything, um, let alone soccer. My dad's Greek, and so we would go back and forth between Athens, Greece, and Detroit, Michigan. And so I got that sandlot type of experience when it came to soccer in Athens. And then back in Detroit, I got that you know pond and freezing the the uh, you know the the driveway and you know going out on lakes and and skating type of uh, background. But then. You know, my my life was also about, you know, being a suburban kid. It was bubble yum and Slurpees and just a lot of rock. And and you mentioned the, you know, the connection to Canada. It wasn't just, you know, sports. It was also music. I mean, we were heavily influenced over there in the radio stations that we were listening to growing up, WLLZ and WRIF. Uh, by Canadian bands. And we were sometimes the first place that a lot of Canadian bands kind of broke. Uh, and sometimes they never got out of there, but they came on my radar um, and and part when were part of my music palette. And so I was going back and forth between playing hockey, playing soccer, playing in garage bands, uh, doing music, and obviously every once in a while studying a little bit too. Oh, that's great stuff. So, all right, let, let us get into the, the music part of the Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Uh, Alan, uh, of course, you used to uh, room with the guys in, in Rad and Dawkin and all that, and Alexi is a big fan of Rat. Now, would you say, Alexi, that Rat is your favorite band of all time or just one of the bands that you really, really like? No, it's my favorite band. And look, I know it doesn't get the the credit, uh, and, and a lot of that genre doesn't get the credit that it deserves in terms of the musicianship and just the, the wonderful stuff that came out. Um, but look, 
music touches you in different ways at different times, and you're helpless to defend against it. And so Rat came on my radar at a time when I was very impressionable. Obviously, it was the mid earlier 90 or earlier 80s when MTV was coming about. So the aesthetic of what Rat brought it was it was it was different than Motley, uh, and it was different than Poison, and it was right in this wheelhouse where it was it was dirty enough, but it was also melodic enough that I just, I loved it. And, you know, Stephen Piercy, what he represented, uh, you know, the unique aspect of the, the musicianship, whether it was his distinct voice or, uh, you know, Warren's incredible playing and that whole, that whole group just came together. And then the live aspect of it, you know, going to Cobo Hall or going to Joe Lewis or going to Pine Knob and seeing these bands, uh, it just, it spoke to me. And it has ever since, uh, you know, so I remain a huge, huge, Rat fan, and anybody ever that asks me in interviews or anything what your favorite band is, it's always Rat. And you know, sometimes you get quizzical looks, but I will die on that Rat Hill. So when I post on this day, I should start adding in the Mighty Rat. The Mighty Rat, exactly. <laughs> uh, Alan, you you the were Mickey there. Rat. The Mickey Rat. The Mickey Rat days. Alan, you were there in the early days. Uh, you've always said to me that Bobby Blotzer is a very, very underrated drummer. Correct? Uh, well, I think most people can appreciate that Bobby is this somebody who can definitely drive a band. Um, maybe not the softest pair of hands ever, but when Bobby's on the kit, you know that nobody's going to go to sleep. The band is going to get up and move and he's going to push the guitar players. Um, but, you know, sleeping around Bobby was a difficult thing anyway. I mean, it was... Um, have you ever, ever shared a cocktail with Mr. Blotzer? Well, I have. I, I, <laughs> you can only you can only share you can't share one that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> no and uh, you know one one of the things about living next door to him or actually when we could afford our own separate buildings and and uh, have our own homes um it would not be uncommon for my doorbell to go at four o'clock in the morning and i'd stagger downstairs sleepily and bobby would be standing there with two styrofoam huge styrofoam cups full of ocean and he'd, I'd look out at him sleepily and he'd go, well, I brought one for you. And <laughs> that would be it. We'd have to go out to the uh, pool room and uh, play pool at four o'clock in the morning and drink cocktails. And that was one of the liabilities of living close to Bobby. He could turn up at any time. Um, but, you know, let me, let me, uh, before we move away entirely from soccer. Oh yes, go um, ahead. It's, uh, you know, the bad back in, when I was a nipper, we used to have um, a sort of Sunday league in London. And I've actually seen David Gilmore in a pair of shorts more often than I've seen him on a stage, um, which is also interesting because when you were playing against somebody like David Gilmore and he'd hack the hell out of your ankles and legs and send you to the ground, You'd look up and think, I'm going to get my revenge. And then you go, no, I can't. He's the lead guitarist in Pink Floyd. <laughs> I, I cannot give back with equal measure. And he knew it, too. He'd have a big smile on his face. You know, we'd play at the back of uh, the Wormwood Scrubs prison. There was a huge uh, soccer area there. And the other funny thing was you'd have people coming from um, parties for Sunday morning games. And you'd look around the opposing team and you'd go, wait a minute, this, this kid's in the, in the Chelsea uh, establishment. You know, he'd been at a party with 
David Gilmore and come along and play with David Gilmore and his soccer team. And you, you really had to up your game. But, you know, let me, let me ask you a couple of quick questions, if I may. Landon Donovan, what was Jurgen Klinsmann thinking of dropping him for that final <laughs> run? Because if ever, I mean, I thought Landon psychologically wasn't quite there for his previous World Cup appearances. But if ever a player was set to actually produce in a World Cup, I think it was Landon. And then the German drops him. What was he thinking? Yeah, so for, for your listeners that maybe don't know a whole lot about soccer, Landon Donovan is arguably the best American soccer player ever to play the game. Jurgen Klinsmann is also a wonderful player uh, in his time, but was, a, was the manager of the United States national team when the uh, U.S. was at the World Cup last. And controversially and, and uh, um, you know, well, not arguably because he actually did it. He left Landon Donovan, this this preeminent star, off the roster and and came in for plenty of uh, criticism. What was he thinking? Look, uh, it, it's not about the best players. It's about the best collection of players. Uh, now, that's easy to say, and that's, you know, that's a little flip. But the reality is that he felt that the team was fine without him. Uh, would they have been better with until, a guy like Landon? I don't know. I mean... Until- and until until we suffered an injury in the first game, exactly, and Landon was entirely missed at that point. And you set um, yourself up. So exactly. I was, I, yeah, yeah. I was I was just wondering though. To me, just as a fan, I went, "Oh God, it's a personality clash." Obviously, yeah. He, he doesn't think he, he doesn't think in the German way, so he's on. He's being left off the roster, but. Uh, um, that, that that was that was a big disappointment. I have to say, I I felt the U.S. team could have gone a little bit further with that one other individual. It is, and it's you know it's a disappointment. Any time we don't qualify for the World Cup, and we didn't in the in the in the last World Cup, hopefully we qualify for the, uh, you know, for 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 the next one. But you know, you were mentioning the, you know, the the soccer, and obviously people call it football around the world. Uh, the connection. So you know, guys like Def Leppard are notorious for coming into town and setting up games so that they can play and they all have their their affiliations as fans but they also play iron maiden the same way uh, you know obviously rod yep. stewart rod stewart all of these different uh uh artists out there that love the game either they played it at whatever level or they love the game from a, a supporters culture and really what it is it's just it's just another form of of fandom you look at the guys from oasis and their affinity and, and affiliation with man city and that 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 type of stuff and it's it's very tribal. It's very it's very much you know part of you know what makes fan bases. I guess of of not just sports teams, but fan bases of of bands and music out there. The the passion, the ownership that you take, um, and the love that you have for what's happening, and that that doesn't go away. You might meander through life and go through different things, but that doesn't go away just because you grow up and uh, do different things. And it's fun to it's fun to see how it manifests out there in so many different people of so many different walks of life. Did you ever try and get Bobby Blotzer onto a pitch in a pair of boots? <laughs> I don't know if he. Well, first off, you got to get him up. All right. So so while he may show up late at night at your door, you got to get him up in the morning for uh, for training out uh, out there. So that's not you know, that's not always easy. And look, you, you know, you mentioned the dynamic of a team uh, and the individuals and, you know, whether it's a team of, of soccer players, you know, you mentioned Landon Donovan, the national team and, and how they fit or it's any type of band. And I don't need to tell you. Uh, you know, they it can be wonderful musicians, but at some point you got to be at least able to work together. And we know the incredible 
dysfunction that has been historic when it comes to rat and it still it, it still plays out each individually all of these incredible personalities are bigger than life and they all have egos and they all have uh, desires and directions that they want to go but you know from my perspective as a fan when that when that collection and that team ultimately it's just it's done, gets together there's something that's magic about it and that's what i grew up on it's what i love it's what first endeared me to them that they can't get it together all right you know that's 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 that i lament that fact but you know i recognize that when you're dealing with individuals all i see is the output which is either you know a song at a concert uh, or a song that i'm the song that i'm listening to and the same way that all we see when it, when we look at a soccer team is that 90 minutes on the field and that other 22 and a half hours is as important as anything in terms of how that 90 minutes ultimately is shown to us let me let me ask well, you with then. rat I'll be, I'll be, with, with rat obviously um, talking of chemistry uh, Rat obviously lost something dreadfully when Robin got sick yep. and eventually passed away. And Robin, I don't know if you ever got the chance to meet Robin, but Robin was a lovely guy. He, he used to uh, he used to be in the house a lot, uh, looking for Don Dawkins' sloppy seconds of of um, rock and roll riffs to uh, try and put a put another song together, but. Um, Losing losing Robin, I think, was a was a, a big wound to that band. It it really was. But uh, Alexa, I'm, I'm going to ask you this because Alan, of course, managed Great White and he managed Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses, I think, revolutionized uh, the music scene at the end of the '80s. Were were those two bands that spoke to you as well? Uh, you know, do you like uh, GNR and Appetite for Destruction, or were you really sort of no? Rat's my band, and the other ones are not where where I need to be. Oh man! I mean, listen. I mean, while Rat remains, you know, the, my my favorite band, because I have to. When you get asked the question, you have to pick one, and it's so difficult. So, of course, I mean, Guns are huge, and what you know, what Appetite did, and the way that it kind of knocked everything on its head, uh, in terms of you know the way they looked and the way they sounded, the time they 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 came about, and then just the you know the epicness of you know uh, the illusions. Uh, it, it, I can you know I can recite lyrics and I, I know every riff uh when it comes to these bands because they were all they were all part of what was uh what was going on for me so you know the uh you know the great whites and the rats and the skid rows and the poisons and the warrants and and all and all of those uh types of bands but then you know i would go and listen to john cougar and Kaja Gugu and duran duran and that side of it or then i would go listen to neil young and tom petty and you know, it was it was all over the place. And yeah, I was growing up in, in in Detroit and in the Midwest where it was, you know, a real type of AOR type of existence and sticks and REO and these types of uh, these types of bands. And then I mentioned, you know, the uh, the Canadian influence where you're, you know, your Aldo Novas and your triumphs. And, you know, people ask me, what's the best trio in Canadian rock history? And I'll always say triumph. And, they, you know, they think you're going to say rush. And I will I will always uh, fight for triumph, you know, and then Loverboy and Brian Adams and all the different things that were that were going on from a, a Canadian perspective. So yeah, I mean the the palette is wide and deep as far as I'm concerned when it comes to music. But if you give if you ask me for my favorite band, it's going to be Rat. It's going to be Rat, and, and of course well, uh, the greatest Canadian band is 
honeymoon suite. Let's not forget that. And there's nothing wrong with uh, Shy Shy uh, <laughs> from Kajagoogoo. Of course. Uh, I will ask you this. Uh, and then, and by the way, when we say poison, we have to say the mighty poison. That's very important. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but dancing undercover. The, uh, yes. Yes, Alan? No, not the mighty? Uh, I'll, put, I'll put that particular adjective on, uh, on ice in that particular case. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, but Dancing Undercover is a rad album that seems to 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 divide the fan base. Many love it, some hate it. I think it's one of the greatest albums. Maybe it's just because at the time I had just started driving and it was a cassette I could have in the car. And But what's your take on that? Uh, you look at Looking for Love, Body Talk, One Good Lover, Dance. I mean, that's as classic as it gets, right? I love, I love it. I, I love the album. Um, I, I don't... I mean, look, I'm going to be a little discerning when it comes to rap, but I'm certainly going to give them the benefit of the doubt. But when I hear when I hear dance and actually I it saddens me that dance isn't part of the set uh, more often. But I know it's a, a, a difficult type of uh, song, even in normal type of circumstances. But I, I love that song. I love the you know to kick off an album with that. Uh, it for me, it, it was just it was wonderful. Uh, and, you know, even some of the things that people look at as as filler, I was arguing with someone on Twitter the other day about Take a Chance, for example, which I think has one of the most melodic uh, breakdowns as towards the end of the song that Rat has ever done. Uh, and one of the most interesting ones, you know, the enough is enough. And we know that Rat didn't didn't really go down that um, that ballad type of path. But any time that they got a chance to show some dynamics and, you know, for example, the beginning of Enough is Enough, uh, enough, is enough I thought that was really, really interesting and something we hadn't really heard a whole lot of uh, when it came to the previous two albums, you know, maybe closer to my heart. But but for the most part, if I got a chance to hear just Warren and Steven's voice in a part of a song, that was something really interesting and different that I hadn't heard before. And that's why something like Enough is Enough is really, really cool. But I, I really like it. Um, I know some people don't. Was it put together quickly? Probably, but sometimes you can find some magic even when it's quickly. Yeah, it's 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 a terrific. Do you know album. what? Um, do, do you know what, uh, Bobby? You used to play on my jukebox in my. Uh, I, I used to have this uh, building separate from the house for obvious reasons that had a pool table in it and studio stuff, and a jukebox. Do you know what Bobby used to play on that jukebox more than anything else? What's that? Beatles first. Elton John second. And when he was well into the bottom of his cups, he would love nothing more than to sing Beatles songs or Elton John songs. There's your sense of melody in the band. Yep. Oh, yeah. I, I fully agree with that. Um, Alan, I'll ask you this. Before Out of the Cellar, you, you knew Rat, I guess, back in 81, 82, 83. And you made allusions to, to Robin looking around for riffs from other bands. Um, what stories do you have for us about that? It, it's really interesting to look back at now because we were just a small community of, uh, of rock and rollers in the South Bay. And in one, in one point, in one building, there was Don and I on one side of the building and there was Bobby and George Lynch on the other and Mick Mars lived down the road and I got the white ones to move into the area and it's it's kind of interesting to look back on that and also with the attitude of gratitude think that we were very fortunate to be part of the last real rock and roll wave that went through LA and not only that but a little bit instrumental 
and made, making a contribution to that. Um, so we were all pretty close, and with closeness and that fraternalness also comes a little bit of sibling rivalry. And um, yeah, I've got I've got my point of view on 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 Rat. Uh, they could be used a songwriter or two more, I think. Um, but you know, they had a great attitude. We played gigs with Rat. Um, there was a sense of which of us might get signed, or which of us would get signed first. And I will tell you, absolutely, Don and I were really put had our noses put out of joint when Atlantic signed Rat, and, and Great White were as yet unsigned, and, and uh, he was as yet unsigned. Um, so there was a little bit of sibling competitivism there. And it was interesting that Alexi referred to dysfunction because, you know, one of the things I, I learned over the years was you can look at a band and virtually every single one I know, um, everybody came from what we might call an interesting family background. Um, the word dysfunction got used excessively a, a few years back, but uh, in many respects, people in bands were looking to create their own perfect little family. And when everybody was struggling together, it was one for all and all for one. But as soon as the dollars started to flow, uh, those baggages of dysfunction started to come out of the cupboard and you had these bands blow up. And in Rat's case, I mean, I, you know, jokingly, I'll say, I'm not sure who's generated more lawsuits, Axl Rose or Rat. Um, <laughs> you know, I think most... I, I think most lawyers in L.A. would say that Rat is their favorite band because they've used a lot of them. Well, yeah, they, they, they're they good at that. Uh, let me bring it back to Alexi a second. When you discovered Rat, was it like most of us where you see Round and Round on MTV or Much Music, in, in my case, and you go, wow, that's great? Or was it something where you had seen them on a, a club tour? How, how does Rat fall on your radar? So it, for me, most of it starts with with the radio and hearing it on, like I said, a Detroit station. And I would it would have been round and round. And then obviously seeing the video and that takes it to a whole nother level. I vividly remember walking to town uh, to Harmony House Records, buying out of the cellar, walking back, putting it on my record player it was an actual album uh, vinyl, putting it on my uh, record player, dropping the needle uh, and hearing the start of Wanted Man to kick off that album, and nothing was ever the same. I, I you know, I didn't get into or, or even know about the EP um, that uh, that existed, and that was you know kind of a retrospective thing for me to go back and listen to that because it wouldn't have permeated into you know the reaches of of suburban uh, Detroit at that time. But yeah, I would I would have heard it, and and there were different shows even before MTV. You know, there was a show called The Beat in Detroit by Doug the Doc Podell. And, you know, he was showing different bands and, and different stuff. So it you had to work back then sometimes to find it. And so if it if it did resonate and if it did break through, uh, usually it made an impression. And that's exactly what Rat did. And, and I never looked back. Wow. Um, Alan, I'm just going to quickly ask you before I forget. But Robin Crosby was in this band called Mac Meta or Mac Meta. Uh, and some of those songs ended up being on the Rat albums. Did you ever San see... San Diego band, right? Yes, the pre-Rat band down in San Did you ever get a chance to see that band? And did you hear the stories of how these Mac Meta songs ended up becoming uh, Rat songs? Um, 
Well, of course, I heard the stories because, uh, you know, it's my next door neighbor and occasionally they would be slamming doors and, uh, for example, Bobby or Robin coming in and, and complaining about um, circumstances with, with those songs and, uh, you know, people's claims on them. But um, no, to be perfectly honest, San Diego didn't exist for me in, you know, 80, 81, 82. Um, we were all focused on what we were doing in the South Bay. And, uh, in, you know, people, people sometimes say, why don't we have another rock and roll wave? And we'll leave out all the record company uh, aspects of it. But one of the magic things about why there was a, a scene down there in the South Bay, which is a, a lovely part of L.A., was that in those days, Hermosa Beach was affordable. And you could actually, you know, if there were two, three, or even four of you who put your money together, could actually rent somewhere down there and pursue the dream. And when things weren't going well, all you had to do was go to the liquor store, get a six-pack, and walk down to the beach. And you felt like you were the king of the world because it would be a Wednesday, it would be midday, and you're on the beach and everybody else is working. Um, but of course, real estate has gone through the roof and you've got to be a multimillionaire millionaire commentator like Alexi to be able <laughs> to afford to live in the South Bay now. So, you know, that's why there's no scene there anymore. But, you know, I look back at it with a tremendous fondness because that was a magic little moment down there. You know, I never thought about that, but you're right. When you have a whole bunch of guys trying to, you know, struggling to get through day to day and they just, like you say, go grab a six pack and hang out. And I guess there is this creative spark now, but now when everybody is super rich and they don't want to talk to their well, neighbors and yeah, I can see that. Well, you, you know, of course, you know, we'd go down to the, uh, the beach with a six pack and Mark Kendall uh, at one point was living with me and Mark and I would go down to the beach and sit in the sand. And instead of watching the girls walk by in their bikinis, we'd sit there with our six pack and all we'd do is complain all day that rat was signed and they were on tour and we weren't. <laughs> well, that, that can happen, I guess. Um, just a real quick, Alexi, uh, Bow Hill, of course, produced most of the rat records, how important do you think he is as a fan? Do, you know, when you look back to Kiss and we talk about Eddie Kramer and we talk about Bob Ezrin or we look at Motley Crue or, or, or Metallica and we talk about Bob Rock, Canadian, by the way, um, do you have that same sort of affinity for Bo Hill? Was he the the sixth member of Rat or could anybody have produced this and gotten the same results? No, he was the sixth men member. I mean, the you know, when I listen to, for example, uh, a... Uh, let's say a twisted sister album uh or a quiet riot album for me it 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 lacks the sheen uh, for lack of a better word that the rat albums had and that's what i wanted okay i know there's people that actually like the fact that it's much more lo-fi-ish but i wanted the sheen i wanted that sugar dripping off of it and even the guys in rat i'm sure they kind of at times were done with it and wanted to move on but that's what, for me, that's what the magic sauce was. That's what got me into it. That it was, it was instantly recognizable. Obviously, Stephen's voice, uh, you can say what you want about it, but it is recognizable. And the types of songs that they had, and even, you know, the, the, the way that the guitar sounded, the drums, a whole, the whole thing, somebody has to put that together. And somebody has to put that then out in public. And if people like it, 
they're going to want more of it. And I wanted more of that. And if you stray too far of it, it, it can be problematic unless you're doing something completely different that is blowing people's minds again and you find a whole nother sheen in a different type of uh, avenue. But they they never did that. I was okay with that. And that comes directly from Bo Hill. He knew exactly how to deal with Steven's vocals and how to make sure that it sounded like like rat. And for some people, that's a that might be a bad thing. Even like I said, even for some guys in the group, that might be a bad bad thing. But I wanted Rat, and I knew what Rat sounded like, and I wanted more of it. Yeah, and I agree. And and in terms of Steven as a vocalist, listen, there are some guys in rock that, that you cannot continue the band without them. I think Jack Russell and Great White is a good example. They've tried to replace him, and it, it's not working because you need that gritty that gritty voice. And Steven's the same thing. Yes, they did Jizzy Pearl, and they did all these. Uh, but Steven is rad, and I don't care whatever Juan or Warren or whoever might say, Steven's rad. I mean, that's that, that's as simple as that. Alan, I'll ask you quickly, uh, he was talking about the sheen on, on these albums. When you got to Appetite for Destruction, did you want to make it sound, for the lack of a better word, more like a garage band, more down and dirty, gritty, in your face? Or were you concerned about production values on Appetite for Destruction? I, I was very concerned about production value. Um, Guns N' Roses, actually, when I started to work for them, had been promised to the guy who owned Patch Studio, uh, Spencer Proper, I think I remember his name was. And um, that concerned me greatly. Um, and I think if uh, Tom Zutout and I did a good job, it was protecting the band from... Uh, that in that impulse that record companies have to make bands sound similar because it's easier to market them and easier to get them to fishtail onto radio. And Tom and I were absolutely bound and determined that we wanted GNR to be GNR for good or for bad. And I mean, you know, most people don't remember this, but radio wouldn't touch. I mean, how, how can you even think of it in this day? when Guns N' Roses songs are heard endlessly every day. But in the first six months of the release of Appetite, we could not get arrested at radio. They would not touch us with a barge pole. And we established uh, the band's momentum uh, through word of mouth, press, and touring. And um, then MTV came along, and that was the moment when uh, we were having a nice little backyard barbecue and somebody came along with a 10, 10 gallon barrel of kerosene and threw it onto, onto the barbecue and everything just exploded. Um, but no, with, with GNR, very definitely, um, we chose Mike Klink for a, a particular reason. And I think we made the right choice. But even so, I mean, you know, I would have Bobby and Don come into the studio when I was making a great white record. And they would go, this sounds too old. You're not using a Soldano amp. You should be using this kind of guitar. And I'm going, no, 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 no. You don't get what we're doing with this band. And, you know, fortunately, they're still on the radio today. So maybe we, we made the right decision there too. Um, but as much as there was a sibling rivalry, we were all very conscious of how each and the other was approaching what they were doing and how they sounded. And you were very conscious of going, well, they've got that little square covered. We need to look at what our best talents are and find our own niche. 
an our own way of approaching things. Well, hi- um, history so, history shows you are right. Let's just put it that way. Well, that's nice of you to say. Um, Alexi, Infestation, the last studio album by Rat, came out in 2010. Believe it or not, 10 years ago, uh, 10 years already. I thought, as a fan, that it was a magnificent return to form. I mean, so many bands in the early 2000s tried to put out albums, and most of them were just unlistenable. You'd listen to it once or twice, and you'd go, meh, all right, already. But Infestation, Eat Me Up Alive, Best of Me, was fantastic. What, what is your take on that? Was, was that classic rat, or was that a, a misstep? Oh, I agree 100%. And I'm so glad that you said that. I thought it was, because you mentioned that we, we are littered with bands that were once something, and then they come out in a very different moment in time. And it just, it sometimes I worry, and I start to cringe because I don't know what it's going to be. And then it inevitably it, it fails to live up to the past. And it's hard sometimes. Actually, it's next to impossible sometimes for these advanced. But then you you see something like this that not only lives up to it, but I think builds on it and at times even surpasses some of the stuff uh, when it comes to what Infestation did. Now, it came out at a time, you know, if this album had come out, let's say, uh, you know, in, after Invasion or something like that, uh, it would have been like, like that second Skid Row album that, that came out. You know, it was a... It was a dramatic, not necessarily departure, but a dramatic evolution. I just think it was a much, it was a mature form of rat. And we, we don't see that a lot. You know, I can think of back to, you know, I think Loverboy did a really, really good album in the mid aughts. Uh, that was kind of, you know, one of the, those aberrations, one of those anomalies where, where people can come out that had really, really huge success and still do something that matches up to their previous catalog. And so I think that this, is right in there when it comes to some of the great work that Rat has done. Um, and it's a pity that it came out and was kind of lost in the shuffle and, and just lost in the time because I think it really holds up. I agree. And I think, like you said, if it comes out perhaps in their place of Reach for the Sky or maybe in, in, instead of Detonator, which both have great songs on it, let's not kid ourselves, they're, they're great albums, but I think this one had such an urgency to it and such a, hey, we're back, mother, f- that... Had it been in 88, I think that would have propelled them to arena status outside of the States. Because, you know, in Canada, they played one arena once. That's it. They played the Maple Leaf Gardens and nothing else. Uh, I think if Infestation comes out in 88, they would have played the Montreal Forum. They would have played the BC, whatever it was called. Um, Yeah, just to... it makes you feel good, though, when something like that happens. And, and you know, Alan, to your, to your point, I mean, um, and, and, you know, you'd appreciate this. For example, I don't know when it came out, a couple of years ago, but, uh, you know, Jack Russell came out with, uh, the, you know, that single Sign of the Times. And I remember turning around going, oh, my God, that is really, really good. And so when, when that type of stuff happens, uh, I love it. Because first off, it... it confirms or affirms what what I have long believed and at time at times defended is that you know a lot of these artists and these bands didn't get the credit uh, in terms of the musicianship and the songwriting ability and just the sheer talent uh, at the time and they were kind of lumped in with others or lumped in with that genre and the fact that they can come back out and they can do something that that resonates even if it res- just resonates with me it it warms my heart when that type of stuff happens unfortunately it doesn't happen a whole lot but when it does it makes it that much more powerful it really does and i'm going to throw this question to both of you before we we start wrapping up but 
Guns N' Roses keeps talking about there's going to be a new album and fans keep talking about it on Twitter and on Facebook. There's going to be a new album, going to be a new album. But are they one of these bands that are sort of trapped by their past? Because if it's not as good as Appetite, it's a disaster. And even if it's better than Appetite, I still think almost 80% of the fans will say, eh, it's still worth. Like, it's sort of pointless to make a new album because you're you're locked into what was. Um, Alexi, what do you think about that? It's it's not pointless for me because I will listen to what Axel does from a vocal perspective, uh, and I will always be curious as to what he's going to do. Now, sometimes, you know, we saw in Chinese Democracy when he's given the run of the studio, <laughs> we don't know if anything's ever going to come out or certainly it's going to take a long time. But I just... I love his voice so much, and certainly when you put it in a studio type of setting, you can do some really, really interesting things. And I think he's, I think he's a genius when it comes to a lot of the, uh, you know, the vocals and and what he does, and certainly his songwriting. So I'm still up for it. But they they can't make another Appetite because certainly as people they're in a very, very different position. But you know, in this day and age where there's so much talk about politics and we know that this is a controversial band i mean i i would think that it would almost be right for them to do something where they come out and they kind of poke their finger at people and uh poke the bear if you will and give us something that as many people hate as love uh maybe that's what guns is all about anyway alan what do you think alexi you hit i i think alexi has hit um an absolutely major button dead center um because for me when civil war got put together my hopes went up because the the very best of the best to me have always had a sociological and political fire to them the best of the rolling stones is when you're talking talking things like street fighting man and and that period um but Obviously, I have a very particular viewpoint on composing and writing in GNR. And my point is really simple. If you don't have Izzy in there, you're not going to get what you should get because Izzy was the critical aspect of the molecule um, for what made GNR GNR. And if you don't have Izzy, you've got a problem. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. Uh, Alexi, any last words for, for Alan? Alan, any last words for Alexi? <laughs> well, I just want to thank both of you guys and, and uh, you know, for for letting me just eavesdrop and, and hang out with uh, with you guys. I mean, we, we talked about the thread that is that is soccer in, in my life and many other lives. But, you know, an even bigger thread out there is is music and the ability to talk about the music that we love. Uh, you know, that doesn't that never goes away. And it's it's brought so much joy into my life and obviously both of your lives. And so thank you for letting me just uh, come in and, and share a little bit with you, whether it's Rat or any of uh, of these other bands or any music out there. I mean, the, the ability to talk about it and the ability to debate and, uh, and, and ultimately show your love for it, especially in these interesting times, shall we say, uh, that, that doesn't go away. So it, it, it made me very, very happy to, uh, to be able to be here with you guys today. Well, Alexi, I have to say the pleasure is, is, is certainly mine because it's always a pleasure to talk with somebody who not only has a love, but also a knowledge. Oh, thank you. That means Absolutely. a lot. Absolutely. And, and uh, Alexa, I'll just want to, I do, I do want to ask you one question that we got uh, thrown off course way at the beginning, but uh, the soccer situation right now with the different leagues playing with no fans, 
some TV stations are pumping in crowd noise to make it sort of give that that ambiance. What's your whole take on this? Uh, not you know, no fans and playing. Is it good? Is it bad? Should they have should, should they have waited? What What do you think? I've always considered myself a performer. Uh, and uh, I'm in the entertainment business, and I have been, whether I was kicking a ball or, or whether I'm talking in, uh, on television. And you go in front of people, lights turn on, and you perform. Uh, I want a performance to, you know, to have the lights, to have the sound. And sports, in many ways, are a comfort food. And without that soundtrack, it's in the same way that you look at film, without that soundtrack, you're missing something. So while, look, we're not fooling anybody, but we're doing things in a challenging time to give you that comfort food as close as we can. And so uh, I've been really fascinated to see how the, I mean, really the artistry and the skill of these individuals, these men and women that are, you know, basically, you know, working faders and piping in enhanced type of uh, sounds. And they've really gotten creative uh, and, and and really, for me, enhanced it, okay? Because that stark, dry, vacant uh, sound that we get in empty stadiums when there is nothing, it, it, it only lasts for so long. And eventually the ear wants what the ear wants. And it's that crowd noise. It's that that comfortable, warm type of cushion that is behind sports that we are watching. And I, so I'm all for them putting it in. Some leagues are doing it. Some leagues aren't. And by the way, some are doing it better than others. And there's this advent of this, this job right now for people that are really, really good, that understand the game, the dynamics of the game, the ups and downs, the flows, and the audio involved in it. And if they're really, really good, I think that they make it a much more enjoyable experience. I agree. And, and you know, for fans that might complain, they've been manipulating what we see on TV for years. You know, when you watch baseball, all of a sudden there's different ads for different markets that are being, you know, added without you knowing. Or in hockey, sometimes they, on the uh, on the plexiglass, you'll see a commercial for a local tire company. And you're like, that's all being that's all manipulated. So don't say that the soccer is manipulated and then not complain about the baseball and the hockey that have been doing it for <laughs> years, right? Uh, Alan, anything anything to add? No, nothing to add except that uh, I sincerely hope Liverpool win their large, the two games that they need. Oh, uh, don't worry. Really don't hard. worry. They're going to be fine. You They've worry about your it. Chelsea. You worry about your Chelsea, all right? Oh, yeah, thanks. I'm worried okay. about my Chelsea. It's going to be okay. I'm you're very worried sign, about my Chelsea. Sign Timo Werner. <laughs> you got you got the American Christian Pulisic there. You're going to be just fine. Don't worry about it. Oh, my Lord. When is hockey back? That's all I need to know. That's all I know. Canadians. It's coming. It is coming. And it's going gonna, it, it's gonna to be strange. I mean, you're going to have hockey starting, I believe, August 1st, running till October, and then they're going to take a break and then start another season. It's It's... It's bizarre, but okay. I'm We're living like, in strange times, right? But you're right. It's comfort food. And uh, I, I have been remarkably watching. Last night I watched the Edmonton Oilers against the Calgary Flames from like 1981. And, I'm, and I was watching this going, I never would have imagined that in 2020 I'd be sitting here watching this and, and, and actually interested. So I guess wow. right, we want it, right? We, we want what we, want we like. Yep. So there you go. Uh, merci, well, Ms. Yes, Alan. Alex. Addicts have to get it where they can. Yeah, well, we do. <laughs> Listen, us, us music fans and, and sport fans are, by definition, by psychological definition, addicted. I, I need to listen to Invasion of Your Privacy. I need to watch the Montreal Canadiens. And I need to tell you that Kiss is the greatest band ever. Right, Alex? 
Uh, I mean, <laughs> Alan. <laughs> oh, you love my kiss talk. I love kiss. I yeah, love kiss. Of course you do. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you, Alexi. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, guys. Merci. Cheers. You're welcome. Here's Paul Stanley to tell you why he doesn't want to shake your hand. Some people might have a little rock and roll pneumonia. Ugh, not even cold gin will kill those germs. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon.